during Advent, we've um, sort of continued the sermon series on conform to the image of Christ, but, but really focusing in particular on this theme of love, love in the flesh. And uh, this morning we continue um, a reflection on 1 Corinthians 13, the great passage on love that Paul writes. So here this morning, um, this verse again, Paul writes, and I will show you, I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove, remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable and resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfect, the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask this morning you, you come in our midst, Holy Spirit, and teach us about the meaning of love. The meaning of love in our own lives and what it means to be loving people but most importantly, the meaning of your great love for us in Jesus. And it's his, his name that we pray. Amen. So how do you know if you are a loving person or not? Have you ever thought about this question for yourself? Am I loving? I don't know. Uh, it all depends on having the right idea about what love is, right? Different understandings of love have different criteria for how you evaluate and measure what love is in one's life. The most popular understanding of love in our culture is love as emotion. Love is an emotional response to others. It's a feeling, it's something that just, it kind of happens to you. So you think about it, like we fall in love right? Or you fall out of love. Um, that means that the way we evaluate the quality of love and the quality of our loving is, is to look to the degree to which we have a positive um, emotional reaction or, or sort of affection um, towards others. Um, however, here's the problem. You can experience this is the problem, at least according to Paul, uh, you can experience great emotional affection and positive feeling towards other people and still fail to love them. 
you can actually fall in love with another person and still fail to love them, which is a really kind of incredible thing to think about, right? Um, what this way of loving misses, the idea that love is something that happens to me, right? I fall in love, is the moral dimension to loving. Love is not primarily about emotion. It, it certainly involves emotion, right? I wouldn't want to deny that. But love is a virtue. Love is a virtue. Love has to do with our fundamental moral character. And if we want to know whether we're loving or not, we have to ask this question. Am I a virtuous person? Am I a person with moral character? See, our culture doesn't think about love in terms of virtue or in terms of character, moral character. Again, we tend to think about love in terms of the categories, uh, therapeutic categories of the self. But according to Paul, love is the sum of all the virtues. It's the sum of all the virtues. Um, that together, love is what happens when you take all the virtues and you weave them together into one person. That is love, right? I mean, this is the idea in verses four through seven, which is what I want to focus on um, this morning. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Just in these couple verses, what Paul does is he makes references to seven positive virtues and eight or nine negative uh, vices, which are the, the opposite of what true love is. Um, and it should be recognized here that, that you know, reading this chapter in the light of the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians, because Paul here, this is not an exhaustive list of what love is. It's very specific to the Corinthian situation and addressing their, their in a sense, bad behavior. So you could add a whole lot more virtues and, and, and vices of the opposite of love. But I, I, wanna, I want you to remind you of another list that Paul uses in Colossians 3 that's a, a nice companion to this one and further illustrates this point. That, so Paul writes, put on that as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So it's that idea that love is that virtue that really pulls together all the virtues. Love is the crowning virtue. Really, all the other virtues exist in service of love, right? That's what they're all aimed at. They're all aimed at love. And so this morning, I want to be very practical. Um, and I just want to answer this question, how do I become a more loving person? How do I become a more loving person? And, and answering this question depends upon us grasping, again, the, the fundamental moral character or, or nature of, of loving other people. And I think, let me uh, draw a grammatical distinction here for you, because the difference, I think, really depends on the difference between understanding love as a noun or love as a verb. A noun is a thing, right? A verb is, a, is an action. 
Again, love as, as a noun is, is like love that just happens to me. It's something I feel or I don't feel. Um, and the problem with this understanding of love is we, you don't think you can act on your love. You're like, I can't make myself love you. And Paul's like, no, actually you can. <laughs> we often think about that, of love as just something that's there or it's not there, and I don't really have a lot of control on it. But love as a verb has this understanding that actually love is an activity. It's, it's a kind of, it, it's a moral striving. Um, it's a moral striving that makes the well-being and the happiness of the, of the other the basis of my own happiness. I remember last week I talked about benevolence. Benevolence is love of others. It's to, to see the other and to make the other person's own happiness and flourishing the object of my own happiness, right? And so um, love, love is a verb, and the translations of these verses, seven, four through seven, are often misleading in English. And it's the case in our particular translation. I mean, it's a good translation. It's not wrong. But we, we tend, it's just the way English works, we tend to translate, these are all adjectives, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. But in the Greek, it's a verbal participle, which means that it's, it's more active, better translated as love waits patiently. Love shows kindness. Because again, love is not a noun. It's not a thing. It's, it's not even a character quality that's just sort of there that either you have or you don't have as part of your personality. Love... Love is a verb. It's, it's an active thing, which means it can be practiced. And I actually think this is very good news that love, love is a verb, because what it means is that it's something that you can grow and deepen in, in your own life through practice. But again, this question, what is it, I mean, what does Paul mean in particular? Like, what kind of practices are we talking about here? And when we think about love, loving other people in terms of Deeds. We think, well, I'm doing nice things for them. I'm doing good, right? It's more on external actions. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. That certainly is true about love. But Paul is actually going deeper into, in a sense, uh, the heart and our very souls. Um, love is, um, his focus isn't, again, on the external deeds of love, but on, on a kind of, internal disposition of your personality. Paul has in mind here the activities of the heart of our inner person and our temperaments. And, and I think this is, I want to make this point because it cuts at the really, the core of who we are as human beings. This discussion of love. It cuts at the very core of our personality. To grow in love is not merely to change your behavior. I mean, it involves behavioral change, but to, to grow in love is to change your personality. It's to change a person like that. So I came very close to getting the right um, sermon title, but I failed. <laughs> the, real, the better title for this sermon is The Personality of Love, because I think that's what, what love gets at when we're talking about how, it, how, it, how we're changed. Now, we tend to think about personalities as, well, that's my personality, right? It's kind of set. It's just that's the way I am, or that's who I am. Or why would I want to change my personality? That's what makes me unique and, and beautiful and individual, right? We tend, to have, we, we tend to see our personalities as things that don't change or things that are, that are kind of special or sacred about us. And, there, and, you know, there's some truth to this. I wouldn't deny that in, entirely. But the gospel's call for transformation is, is a call to submit our personalities to change for the sake of love. You should be willing to change who you are as a person for the sake of love. That's how radical love is. 
And the reality is this, it's, it's when, you, when we do this, it's not you giving up yourself, your true, you know, unique specialness. Um, it's actually you finding your true self. Because those parts of ourselves that are not loving, that is not our true self. That's your false self. That's your flesh. Um, when you find, when you become loving and your personality changes, that's when you really find your true self. Because then you're conformed to the image of Christ, which is your destiny, what you're called to. So, so love and the practice of love is, is to have a new personality conformed to the image of Christ. And, and, and here's the beautiful thing about it. When that actually happens, it doesn't make us all just blandly uniform, right? And actually, that's when you really become an individual. That's when you really become set apart. The most unique and interesting people in the world are loving and holy. Um, okay, so I am not much for personality tests. I kind of hate them. But, you know, so like the Enneagram and, and um, Myers-Briggs, you, you name them. I mean, I see their usefulness. There's a value there for, for self-understanding, self-discovery, and understanding how people uh, interact with one another. Um, so they, they, I'll admit a certain kind of value to them. Now, one way to approach these verses, verses 7 through 4, is, is a kind of personality test for love. Um, one of my earliest memories of reading and hearing this, these verses taught um, was the suggestion by the teacher that I substitute my own name in the place of love. You've probably heard this, hopefully. You know, so Chris is patient, Chris is kind. He does not envy, he does not boast, right? Have you, have you heard this? It's a good exercise, so let's do that this morning. Um, I mean, it's a very humbling experience, to be sure because you quickly realize how far fall, short you fall of actually embodying these different aspects of true loving. But I think this is, Paul really wants us to, to, to reflect deeply on ourselves and our love. And so, I mean, if you're a real glutton for punishment and really into personality tests, you could just, I have nine points. I'm not, you know, just a paragraph each. You could do a one through five rating and then you could add it up at the end and I didn't come up with a scale, and then you could rate yourself pass, fail, average, or like excel, right? Um, let's have a little fun with it. Um, so I want to go through, I can't go through every single one of these. I've always struggled to preaching this because there's a lot here. But I, I want to give us a sense of an overall picture, a big picture uh, of what love is. So Paul starts with patience. Love waits patiently. What does this mean? It means that love is not in a hurry. Love doesn't rush things. Love waits on the other. Um, I think this is especially important virtue in our culture, which is I've often described as an on-demand culture, right? Everything is on-demand. And in fact, impatience in our culture is a virtue, right? Because it, you know, you want to get things done, right? Makes you productive. Um, we, our whole consumer culture um, is based upon reducing waiting times by greater and greater efficiencies to where we have to wait less. We just shouldn't have to wait, right? Um, but this is not how love works at all. Uh, relationships take time. Love takes time. Um, there's nothing efficient about love and relationships and people. Selfish love in us is a love that 
that thinks that people need to be moving at the same pace that we're moving at, whatever it might be. Whether it's the development of a relationship or whether it's kind of overcoming some issues or problems, like, come on, get to it. Let's do this, right? I'm waiting for you. <clears throat> but love waits patiently because it recognizes that everybody's different. Everybody's on a different pace. And everybody, there's different timings in people's lives that you have to pay attention to for their well-being. Now, imagine you're a family with small kids, maybe some older kids as well, and you go on a family hike in the woods. And a lot of you can, you know, you go, the, this happens when you go hiking with a group of people, right? You've got some people that are just like way out there. They walk way too fast. And uh, that's always me. I'm the slow guy. Um, and now, if you have children, though, like, and you're on a family hike, and you have the, you know, the six-year-old or whatever, or seven-year-old hike, and they just can't walk as fast as everybody else. Now, do you just keep going and just leave them behind, knowing, well, they're, they're going to get to us eventually? Uh, no, you don't. You wait. You wait. Right? Because you realize that that child is, you know, is a child. Maturity and life, but that's, that's kind of like life in general. Love in general and relationships. Sometimes you just got to wait up. Not be in such a rush and a hurry for things to happen on your timeline. So the cultivation of love, it, it's, it's gradual. It takes time, right? Um, love is patient. It can't be microwaved. You can't microwave love, okay? So love is patient. Love is kind. Love shows kindness. Um, kindness is, what is kindness? Kindness is a disposition to do good to another person, person with, without regard to how it benefits you. It's just a general disposition to do good to others without how it, it, it uh, benefits you. Now, we often think that the opposite of kindness is cruelty. And for sure, that cruelty is the opposite of kindness, but I think there's a better word that is the opposite of kindness. Um, I heard one person say this, and uh, reflecting on a novel I was reading, uh, she described kindness as, uh, the opposite of kindness as alienation. Alienation is the opposite of kindness. Um, it, it is a sense of disconnection, disregard, an absence of concern for others, right? Um, it's, it's a kind of thinking about the world and others, and you see a problem or you see something, and you're like, that's not my problem, right? It's a kind of not my problem thinking. Um, now, you think about the English word kindness comes from the word kind, Right? To be kind is to consider somebody, that's my kind, that's my kin, those are my people. Um, to treat people with kindness is to, to say, no, this is, this is my kind, these are my people, These people this person belongs to me in a sense. Not possessively, but like, this is my kin, and I'm responsible for them, and I want to do them good. Right? Again, kindness is the opposite of, of, of alienation where we just generally go through the world detached or just not concerned, or, or, or the way that we just see people as strangers. Even people we know, but we tend to regard them as strangers. And a stranger is somebody who you tend to see as potentially dangerous. Um, and so, um, you, you, or, and you're suspicious, so you just, you don't engage or you don't go out of your way. But again, kindness is to treat others as if they were your own. And, and this is precisely how God treats us. It's that, that great, beautiful word in the Hebrew Bible, hesed, that always describes God. God's hesed, which is his loving kindness. He counted us as God, as like his own kin. <laughs> We're his people. 
And so he treats us with loving kindness. And that, that is really the whole, I mean, that is, the incarnation is, is that principle in flesh. Love is kind. So love is patient, love is kind, but love does not envy. Or more exactly, love does not burn with envy. What is envy? Envy, envy is a feeling of discontent and agitation that's aroused in us when we see other people being successful and getting ahead in ways that we'd like to, right? That's what, that's what envy is. So a person gets a promotion, they land a job, they get married, they have a kid, they receive some award or recognition, and instead of you being happy, <laughs> actually you're sad. Have you ever had this happen where you hear great news of somebody and, and instead of being happy, you're, you're actually bummed out? That's envy. Um, it's to be discontented with your own life at another person's own success or happiness. Uh, St. Augustine, Augustine calls envy a diabolical sin because it seeks, um, it, it's a sorrow at, at the good of another, but it, and it secretly desires the destruction of the good. That's, why, that's what he means by, by diabolical. Envy is a manifestation in us of a kind of, what I talked about last week about a zero-sum universe where we just think there's, there's only winners and losers. If you're winning, somebody else is losing. That's kind of envy, and um, where the, the blessing of other becomes a threat to myself. And I think the reality is, is envy gets, gets sort of, I'll use the word that sublimated into us. And I, what I mean by that is that it gets sort of like, it, it gets into us in ways that we don't really see it. So maybe you're, you're, you've never had that experience where you're like, you're really sad in others. But oftentimes, like in career and work, this is particularly the case, like you are absolutely driven to just be the best. But part of it is being the best is like you want to beat everybody else. You want to be the best. And part of what motivates you is being better than others. That's envy, right? Um, how do we deal with envy? I like what one pastor said. Tuck Bartholomew. He said, envy is the overflow of a heart that has stopped trusting in God. Envy is the overflow of a heart that stopped trusting in God. The way to address envy in our life is to let our hearts learn to rest in the Lord. So love, love does not envy. Okay, we're moving along here. I'm trying to keep it two to three minutes. Hopefully this, this is uh, not too laborious. Love is not boastful. Love is not boastful. What is it? What does a boastful person look like? It is, it's not just the person that brags about how awesome they are, right? <laughs> a boastful person is just somebody who's always the center of attention, right? A boastful person is somebody who's always the center of attention, um, that occupies like kind of center stage in a room. And it's not necessarily by even like them talking about themselves and in terms of high self-regard, but it's just simply, they like, could even be like just talking about your problems all the time. Right? Like, you know, you're just, you're the one who's doing most of the talking and you're doing very little listening, right? When we're, when we're boastful, I mean, that's a, like, where we, we're just, it's our world and our problems that, it, that sort of just consumes everything, right? And so the opposite, but the opposite of boastful is just, is sort of a self restraint where I don't have to be talking all the time. And actually, I'm, I'm generally interested in others and I, I ask them questions about their life and I listen and I try to understand them. Love is not boastful. 
Love is not arrogant or proud. Proud is the word, I thought. Um, love is not proud. In my experience, nothing ruins relationships like pride. Pride, and pride has many destructive manifestations. Most common for me, meaning when I do it, is a resistance, um, a refusal to admit that I was wrong and to apologize. I mean, that, if, if, you, if you know you did something wrong and you, you just don't want to apologize for it, that's pride, friend. That's pride, right? Um, sometimes we, we're just too proud to apologize, even though we, we know we were the one who were in the wrong or we overreacted. Uh, I mean, this happens in marriage all the time. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, something happened and, and, you know, with a friend and, and, you know, you felt slighted or, and they seemed slighted and, and, you know, you're like, I'm not going to be the first one to call. And so nobody calls, and it's like 20 years later, you still haven't talked to each other. That's pride. But pride also manifests itself in other ways through defensiveness, right? Uh, and like a defensiveness against being called out or corrected, um, thinking that you're always right. It, it's, it's an intolerance of any criticism uh, or questioning of your character. Um, and, and when you are questioned or criticized, that you just kind of lose it. I mean, and, and you just sort of, <laughs> you explode, or you lose it, or you just cut off relationships, right? That's pride. That's arrogance. Arrogance is another word which I think slightly is different than pride, but fits the category. Um, another manifestation of this is when we're in relationships and we have conflicts, and we just, we just assume that our version of the story is the true version even without really deeply engaging the other person and asking them what happened um, and just trying to get a little bit more information. And, and we just sort of, we, we, we impute motives. You did this because you were doing, feeling this. And like, we, as if we can see inside people's hearts and what motivates them. We do this all the time. We impute motive. And it's very, pro, it's very arrogant because we presume we can read other people's minds and their hearts. And the only way you can know a person's heart is if they share what's going on, right? And so that's, again, that's another manifestation of pride. And, and nothing kills friendship and relationships like pride, right? Nothing kills it. So what's the opposite of pride? Humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. It's, an, it's a posture of openness to the other. It's, it's a recognition that you don't have the whole picture, that there's things that you could have been missing in this whole exchange or conflict. It's a recognition that you yourself could have done something wrong without realizing it, even though you were intending the best thing. But it's an openness to that idea of approach of the other and humility before the other. See, pride, pride is intolerant of criticism and insists that the relationship be on your own terms. <laughs> that, that is pride. Um, but love is not proud. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. What does it mean to be rude? Now, rudeness, rudeness really, it's a lack of manners. Rudeness is a lack of manners. It's, it is a discourteous show. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of discourteousness, a failure to show respect for another person. Um, now, manners are social conventions that are very contextual, and they're different from culture to culture, and even from family to family, or person to person. I mean, generally, cultures have generally agreed upon manners. 
Um, and so you're like, well, what's the big deal? It's just a manner. It's not like I'm doing anything immoral here. Um, but let, let, me, let me take an example. Somewhat humorous, but loud belching at the table. Now, I'm sure there's a culture in which loud belching at the table is a sign of, of like, that was a great meal. But in general, in America, in most countries, it's actually not. <laughs> it's actually, most people experience it as somewhat off-putting and gross and a sign of disrespect. Now, you can say, well, what's the big deal? I'm not being immoral. But here's the thing. Love is about respect, right? It's it just recognizing that, that we all have different ways that we show respect to one another. We experience respect to one another. And, it's, and it's, it's not about me expressing myself and me being me, me being true to myself, right? Like, you know, it's, it's being one to limit myself to show honor and respect. And I think this really comes home. If you've never left, if you ever traveled cross-culturally, whether in America or in other countries, like, you realize how important um, not being rude <laughs> and having manners is because you, you will alienate a, a whole group of people if you're not socially, you know, clued in. This is important. It's not the most important thing. It's not like this great immoral sin, but like love is about respect, recognizing the dignity of other people. So love is not rude. Okay, love is not irritable. Um, it is not exasperated. It is, another translation, it is not easily angered. Or I think another one I heard, which I like, not, love is not overly sensitive or touchy. Do you have people in your life that are extremely sensitive emotionally? Either they get really, really mad easily, or they get really, really hurt easily. Or maybe this is you, right? You're always, in your relationships, you find you're often frustrated and angry and mad. Or you're often coming away and you're always just feeling hurt. Like people are always hurting me, right? This is irritability. This is what, what Paul has in mind here. It certainly waits on, on the, the side of anger, but I think it also has this, this more, like, I feel hurt um, and injured all the time. See, when we're irritable as persons in our personalities, one of the signs is that we take ourselves too seriously. We take ourselves too seriously. Um, we take, we, you know, we, we, we in, in, in an irritable person, like, I have... People like this in my life, family members, not, nobody here. <laughs> Growing up, I walked on eggshells around my dad because he would fly off in anger for little things. Though, those are not enjoyable <laughs> kinds of experiences, right? And, and you know, that, that's, that's the thing about irritability, right? Everybody's sort of just, they're, they're, they're afraid to engage you. Right? Or they're afraid to actually uh, share what they really think about something. And, and so, again, love is, is not irritable. And I actually think the opposite of irritability, especially in this part, is, is, is a sense of humor. One of the biggest ways you can overcome irritability in your life is to develop a sense of humor about yourself, to be able to laugh at yourself. Because if you can laugh at yourself, you learn not to take yourself so seriously. You develop a little bit of a thick skin where everything doesn't just so agitate you emotionally. Towards, towards anger or towards, you know, uh, trauma. Love, love is not irritable. Love has a sense of humor. I think that's very important. Okay, we're getting close to the end here. 
Love is not resentful. Or, or more exactly, love does not keep records of wrongs. That's, I think, the more um, exact sense here. Love has a short emotional memory about when wrongs are done or received, right? You don't, you don't you know, make a ledger of all the things that people have said or ways that you felt injured against you. See, we often do this, right? We keep a record of wrong, like, and we remember the insults and the injuries, and, and we, we kind of replay them in our mind, in our imagination, on repeat. And, and we sort of experience the injury over and over and over and over again. And what it does is it keeps us from being able to engage. But, but again, love does not keep a record of wrong. Um, what love, the opposite of this is, is forgiveness. Um, love is forgiving. To for, and, and here, forgiving here, I think you can think of on a couple different levels. Um, to be a forgiving person, or sometimes we use this word generous person, is, is just like in your everyday interactions with people that, that aren't super weighty and, um, I mean, you just, I don't know, you just, you overlook things like offenses and ins- things that you could construe and interpret as an insult or, or something that could offend you. You're just like, whatever, it's not a big deal. Or I'm going to give that person the benefit of the doubt. I don't think they meant that, right? That, that's what it means, right? It's just, I, I, it's okay. Like, you know, that doesn't mean you, 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 like, you indulge bad behavior, but most of the time, the, the times when we get all fired up and upset, it's usually not big, big things, right? Um, and, uh, but there is another level of, of, of forgiveness here, which is real harm, real, real significant harm that people have done. And, and the call is the same, though. It's forgiveness. <laughs> it's forgiveness. Why? Because the Lord has forgiven us. And th- now this isn't, you know, like I said, I have a whole sermon this past fall on forgiveness. I refer you to that. Um, it's not an easy thing. It's a process. And, but love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Now, this final one I think is important because it really follows up on the last one. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is a really important mark of love. Love, love is forgiving, but love does not indulge evil and injustice. Love is loyal, <laughs> but love does not prioritize um, fidelity uh, to one and to indulge evil. Katie and I were recently watching a, a British crime drama in, in which um, two older spouses and what came out is that one had murdered a couple people like decades ago and it's getting unearthed literally. And then finally one spouse rats the other one out that yeah, that uh, she did this. And, and I turned to Katie, I said, hon, um, if I murdered somebody and covered it up and you found out about it, would you, would you stay in loyal love and protect me or would you turn me in? What do you think her response is? She's like, yeah, I would report you. <laughs> Which is the right answer. It is absolutely the right answer. And I'm making a joke in part, but this is absolutely so important to get. How much abuse, how much evil, physical abuse, sexual abuse, happens in the world because of a distorted understanding of loyalty and love. We don't want to break up the family. And so we indulge evil. We let it go. But that's not love, friends. That is not love. 
Love does not rejoice in evil. It rejoices in the truth. Love does not turn a blind eye. We only love according to the truth. Okay, so I want you to add up your points. <clears throat> One through five, you've got nine. How did you do? I've just, um, did you pass the test? Or like me, do you feel sufficiently dejected and overwhelmed by how badly you fail this test of love? Okay, I, I did not pass the test. I'm not gonna tell you that you didn't pass the test, but you can draw that conclusion for yourself. But now I wanna do something different and close. I want you to take your name out of that list and I want you to put another name in there, and that name is Jesus of Nazareth. And I want you to stop thinking about your own life in the light of those character qualities of love, and I want you to start thinking about his life, because his life is the perfect embodiment of that love. But I don't want you to just think about um, how Jesus is now, he's a great model and example, and I can look at Jesus and do what Jesus did. I don't want to let you off the hook either and say he just does it for you, so just everything I just said the past 30 minutes doesn't apply to you. That's not it at all. But I want you to think about what it would become like to be an object of this kind of loving. So in other words, rather than being the person that is doing the loving, you're the person that's on the receiving end of this kind of love. That's what we all want out of life, out of all of our relationships. And that is precisely what God gives us in his son, Jesus Christ. He loves us this way. He loves us this way. See, um, the love is the sum of the law. But it's still the law. And, you know, we're called to obey it. But you know what? Like, kind of really zeroing in on these different things, which I encourage you to do, is only going to take you so far and love, because there are things in us that keep us from loving that are way beyond our capacity to overcome. And the way that you become a loving person isn't necessarily doing what Jesus did, but recognizing that we love because God loved us first. And that the growth of the, and this is such an important principle, <laughs> growth in the Christian life is not a response to the law of love. Growth in the Christian life is a response to the experience of being loved. The way you become a loving person is by being loved. <laughs> you are only loved into this kind of loving. That, that friends, is the gospel. And I know I, this is a law-heavy sermon. I recognize I struggled with this, but, you know, it's in the scriptures. This is how we ought to interpret it and understand it, but I do not want you to miss this important truth. Growth in Christian love is not a response to the law of love. It is a response to being loved by Jesus Christ recognizing that you are a child, you are a daughter, you are a son of the Father's household, and he says, without qualification, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. When you experience that kind of love, it frees you. It, it, it lets you let go of a lot of things that keep you from loving. Love is a weighty thing in life. And if you let your, it, it will crush you, because <laughs> you will always fail. But know this, friends, that the weight of love fell on Jesus' shoulders, and it did crush him, 
but he overcame. And he bears that burden of love for our sake. And he continues to love us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for our Savior, for the way he loves us. I pray, Lord, that we would have deeper insight into our own hearts and our own ways that we fail to love one another. But the we would have a deeper sense, Lord, yet that you love us. And that even as we fumble about in our lives and relationships, trying to, to love imperfectly, we know, Lord, that you love us perfectly. And that your love is always the context and the surrounding atmosphere of our lives. And that even when we fail, we know that we can never lose your love. We thank you for sending your son that you promised for eternity that you would always have us at your side. And so we give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.